Hey folks, happy epiphany to you, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are doing one of our occasional Q&A sessions. This time, it's with Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts. Here, they'll be answering three questions, one on the ties between Ruth and Genesis 38, another on the ties with Elijah, Elisha, and John the Baptist and Jesus, and the final question on whether or not the Bible promotes the idea of a meta-narrative. I'll leave a link down there in the show notes for you to our Curious Cat account, where you can leave questions to be answered in future episodes. And just a reminder, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. There's a link down there in the show notes for you to do that. We release weekly videos on Bible, liturgy, and culture. And right now we are in the middle of a series on liturgy and our labors. There's also a link there to sign up for our weekly newsletter in Medias Race. With that, we hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this episode. And here are Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts answering your questions. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts. Uh, Brian Motes is handling the technical side of the podcast. Uh, Jeff Myers is not with us uh, for this episode. His granddaughter, uh, who was born last spring with hydrocephaly, has been having some medical problems, health problems. And so Jeff is caring for his family, taking care of his his daughter and son-in-law and granddaughter and uh, involved with that. Please pray for Jeff Myers and his family, and particularly for his granddaughter, Charlotte, who has a, a host of medical problems, and uh, it looks like uh, it's a, it's going to be a, a challenging time for the whole family. So do pray for Jeff. Uh, we hope he can he can rejoin us next time. We are broadcasting this or, or sharing this podcast a couple of days after the beginning of the Epiphany season. Epiphany is the season that follows the Christmas season. In the church calendar, Christmas is not just the single day of Christmas that's celebrating the birth of Jesus, but it's stretched out over a couple of weeks, 12 days of Christmas, uh, as the song has it. Uh, and historically, the church has celebrated that as the Christmas season. So, you, And then January 6th, at least in the Western church, we have the beginning of the Epiphany season. Uh, Epiphany is tied in with the birth of Jesus uh, because it's uh, particularly focused, at least in part, on the uh, visit of the Magi and the coming of the manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles. Uh, epiphany means manifestation or revelation. And the particular event that Epiphany is celebrating is the manifestation of the glory of Jesus in the star of Bethlehem, uh, the manifestation of the glory of Jesus to the first Gentiles who uh, see Jesus. Those are the Magi who follow the star to him. Uh, and then Epiphany stretches out over a number of weeks and um, lasts until the beginning of Lent uh, in the historic church calendar. And during that time, the church not only uh, commemorates the event of the visit of the Magi, that manifestation of Jesus, but also remembers a number of the events of the ministry of Jesus that manifest the glory of the glory of Jesus. So there's often a, a Sunday devoted to attention to the baptism of Jesus, which uh, reveals his identity as the Son of the Father and as the one who's anointed by the Spirit. Uh, and uh, a Sunday that would commemorate uh, Jesus' first sign, as uh, John describes it in John 2, the transformation of water into wine at the wedding of Cana. And then the uh, celebration of Epiphany typically climaxes with the celebration of the Transfiguration, 
uh, when Jesus is glorified before his disciples as a preview of the glory that the Son of Man will have in the future. We're now in the Epiphany season. Uh, we've finished off the series that we did, we're doing in the Gospel of Luke. We began that back before Advent and stretched through Advent through the Christmas holidays and then up to the beginning of Epiphany. And we were looking at the birth narratives and then the story of Jesus at the age of 12 visiting Jerusalem and being in the temple. Uh, we're taking a break from a series this week. And as we occasionally do, we're taking some time to answer questions that you have posted for us on our a Curious Cat account. Brian will put the a link for the Curious Cat account if you want to add any add any questions to that to that collection of questions. We'll, we every month or two we devote a podcast to uh, answering these questions. So we we hope to get around to the questions that you're posting. Feel free to post them. We have a few questions that we want to uh, that we want to address uh, in this episode. Uh, the first is this. I'll read it and then uh, uh, Alistair will chime in with his thoughts on it. I noticed recently when reading through Ruth that many themes and details seem to be picked up from Genesis 38, uh, the story of Tamar. The two seem very connected, and this is confirmed by explicit mention of Tamar and Perez toward the end of Ruth. I would love to hear your comments on these typological connections in these passages and how they anticipate Christ as Redeemer. Thoughts, Alistair? I think the questioner is right to notice those sorts of connections. There are several connections that we can highlight. I think not least the fact that in the story of Ruth, we have a number of callbacks to events in Genesis, not just to the story of Tamar, but also to the story, for instance, of Lot's daughters. In both of those stories, we see a man um, sleeping or um, having drunk or something like that and relaxing, and then a woman coming to him in a scene, in the first case, in the birth of Moab, um, in a scene where Lot has relations with his daughter when he's drunk. And then in the second, where Ruth comes to Boaz at night when he's lying down, and it seems like we're going to see that scene played out again. Um, in a similar way, in the story of Judah and Tamar, there is an event of um, leverant marriage. There's the um, failure to have children that by that means and Onan die and Sheila is not being given to Tamar um, and then this woman coming secretly to the man having relations with him and then a child being raised now in the case of chapter 28 38 of Genesis those children are Perez and Zerah and as they're born um, we have the birth, as it were, of the dynasty of Judah. This is the start of a story of a tribe that will eventually lead to the kings, to David himself. We see that again at the end of the story of Ruth, that at the end of the story of Ruth, there is the attention drawn back to the story of Tamar, to the birth of Perez and Zerah, and also the attention brought forward to the forthcoming birth of David, that David is going to come from this particular line. In the story of Judah and Tamar, there are also questions of Judah as a figure of rule, because he seems to be divested of his rule in the middle of the story, where he gives over his staff and he gives over his signet, and it seems that he's giving away his tokens of office at that point. Later on, in the blessing upon Judah in chapter 49, we have 
reference made to, um, I think, reference made to the events here in a subtle way when it talks about the the scepter not departing from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the people or until Shiloh comes. And as you read that passage, I think it's referring in a subtle way back to the events of chapter 38, where it seems that the scepter does depart from between um, the feet of um, Judah. And there are other things going on in those stories too, because both the Moabites and the um, character of Judah were excluded from the congregation of the people on account of the birth of the ancestor. So the Moabites were kept out for 10 generations and also the um, descendants of the illegitimate son are kept out for a similar length of time in Deuteronomy, um, the end of Deuteronomy. And Ruth works a lot with the background of Deuteronomy, both in the gleaning laws, in the leveret marriage, and then in the case of the judgment upon Moab and the judgment upon the illegitimate son. And I think what we see in the story of Ruth is redemption for both the lines of the Moabites and the line of Judah, and that the king is going to arise from this great redemption narrative that happens in a context that people wouldn't necessarily notice. This is not the grand scale of the court of Israel or anything like that. It's not even taking place within the temple. This is something that's taking place in a backwater town, and God is setting something right in two um, people groups that have been wrong for a while. And then he's going to, through those that union of Ruth and Boaz and the redemption that's brought about through that, he's going to bring about the Davidic line. So I think those connections immediately should stand out to us. There are further ones, but those are the ones that I think we should first notice. The, the thing that I would highlight is the, a series of deaths within the line of Judah uh, at the uh, beginning of the uh, Tamar story. This comes home in the genealogy of Judah that you have in uh, Chronicles, where you have several lines of Judah that come to a dead end for one reason or the other, and then are revived. And that's what, what's happening to Judah, Judah's line in Genesis 38. His descendants keep dying uh, without without seed, without, uh, without children. So the, the family in future kingship of Judah is dying. And it's by Judah's fathering a child by Tamar that revives the, the line of Judah. Again, that's that's the pattern that you have in the genealogies and chronicles that, that you have these these various dead ends in the family tree of Judah that are revived by the incorporation of, uh, usually an incorporation of a Gentile, which is what you have in Genesis 38. And I think that's the same, broadly, that's the same storyline of, of Ruth it is about the incorporation of a Moabite woman into Israel, but the incorporation of the Moabite woman is for the sake of providing seed for Naomi. Naomi is the one who's described as having a descendant and having her her family restored at the end of the story. She's the one who's had one who's experienced the the same thing that Judah experienced, which is in the death of her sons. So her her uh, her future is stillborn, and what she needs is. She needs to have her, her dead womb opened up, and that's done through Ruth. So in both cases, you have this, this dead end of a line of, uh, a line of Israel uh, that is restored and revived by the incorporation of a Gentile. And I've, I've thought about, particularly about Ruth in the light of 
Paul's description of what's happening with uh, Jews and Gentiles in Romans 9 through 11. And it's by the incorporation of the Gentiles that, that Israel comes back to life. Um, and that's, I think that's being foreshadowed in, in both of those stories. And that, if you think about that typologically looking ahead to Christ, obviously that's part of the dynamic of what's going on in uh, the early century, the first century of, of uh, the church's history. Jesus is born of Israel under the law. Uh, he comes to redeem his people. Uh, but then you have this twist on that that story where the, the, the incoming of the Gentiles actually becomes a means for uh, saving Israel. So you have that that replacement, that that uh, reversal, that's already foreshadowed in the in the book of Ruth and in the story of Tamar. I think you also see that just in the way that the genealogy of Matthew is given to us. If you were going to focus upon the women within Jesus' genealogy, you'd probably think of um, Leah, and you'd think of Sarah, and you'd think of um, those sorts of characters. But yet, it's Ruth, it's Bathsheba, it's um, these Gentile women, like it's Tamar and other people that you would not expect. They're very much Gentile women coming from without who are going to bring new life, um, and often in surprising and maybe unconventional ways. Uh, Let's move on to uh, question number two, which is this. I would like to hear your thoughts on Elijah's passing his ministry on to Elisha. And how this compares with John passing his ministry on to Jesus. One interesting detail to me was Elisha's request to receive a double portion of the spirit that was on Elijah. If this anticipates the fuller presence of the spirit of Christ's ministry as a new Elisha, then might it be legitimate to connect the double portion as not just greater, but as the portion of the firstborn, Jesus being the firstborn of God? Uh, And I'll, I'll just comment on that last question. I think that's exactly right when uh, Elisha is asking for the the double portion of the spirit. I don't think that means he wants twice as much as Elijah had. Uh, I think it means he's asking for the privilege of the firstborn. He wants to receive. He wants to be the uh, receive the the firstborn's portion of the spirit. Uh, and that's in, in important way. That's what you see set up from that point on through uh, Elisha's ministry. Striking how different Eli- Elijah and Elisha's ministry are, are in relation to kind of a community life. Elijah is a famously lonely prophet who thinks he's actually thinks he's more alone than he actually is. uh, But he believes that he alone is left. That's what he says to the Lord when he goes to Mount Horeb. But then Elisha receives a double portion. He becomes a firstborn with the spirit and he's uh, now uh, surrounded constantly by other prophets. There are communities of sons of the prophets that are, uh, have just spring up from nowhere as soon as Elisha's ministry begins. You don't see those uh, during the time of Elijah. You know there are other prophets because Obadiah is saving prophets and preserving them in hiding. But with Elisha, they come out of hiding, and, and Elisha becomes the chief prophet, the firstborn over a community of prophets. So that's at least one, uh, in answer to that particular question, I think that's exactly right. It's the, it's the, the right of the firstborn that Elisha is requesting. We also see in Scripture a number of cases where there are transitions on the banks of the Jordan. We see that between Moses and Joshua. We see it with Elijah and Elisha. And then we see it with John the Baptist and Christ, where each one of those have a transition event, um, whether it's Moses commissioning Joshua on the banks of the Jordan, 
they're about to cross over into the land, whether it's um, Elijah and Elisha on the far side of the Jordan and the chariots of fire taking Elijah up into heaven, or whether it's John the Baptist baptizing Christ. And in all of those cases, there are deeper connections when we look further. So John the Baptist is described as the Elijah that was to come. He's described as one who is dressed like Elijah, who eats the same sort of food as Elijah. He's one who is, like Elijah, an Eremite prophet, a prophet of the wilderness, like Moses too. Moses is a man of the wilderness, whereas Joshua, Elisha and Jesus are all people that bring things into the land itself. And their names also have resonance with each other. Elisha, Joshua and Jesus, which is also Joshua. All of those names have a connection with each other. Reading through the stories, I think we can see within the Gospels that Luke particularly, I think, um, fashions the story of Jesus in a way that helps you to see some of the connections between the stories of Elijah and Elisha, not just in the explicit references to Elijah um, in reference to John the Baptist, but also in things like the miracles of Christ. In his first introduction to his ministry at Nazareth, he talks about the ministry of Elijah and Elisha and the way that the widow of Zarephath and the um, um, Naaman the Syrian were helped. And then later on in Jesus' ministry, you have two miracles that I think draw attention back to that. The centurion servant and then the widow of Nain and his her son being raised. And in those cases, Jesus, I think, is very consciously modeling his ministry after the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. He's the one who multiplies bread and loaves, much as we see Elisha multiplying loaves in his ministry. And both in the stories of Elijah and Elisha um, and in the story of Moses and Joshua, we see clusters of miracles. Those aren't things that we commonly find in Scripture. They're also found in the ministry of Christ and in the ministry of the early church, where I think we see further examples of these themes playing out. Christ's ascension is the church's Pentecost, just as Elijah's ascension is the time at which um, Elisha is clothed with power from on high. So the church is clothed with power from on high as Christ ascends into heaven. And there, I think, there is also a visionary aspect to that. That It's precisely in Elisha's ability to see Elijah being taken up, see that vision of heaven that qualifies him to be a fitting successor. Um, I think we see other themes in Christ's ministry where he's taking the Elijah, Elisha themes and applying them to himself in the way that he calls his disciples, um, the way that he almost sets his ministry and mission as one that has a greater urgency than the mission of um, Elijah, who was prepared for Elisha to go back and have a feast with his parents and then go on. But Christ says, um, let the dead bury their own dead. Um, And these other statements that present his mission as one of immediate urgency that can't wait for anything. Yeah, I think think your point about the... You got a you got a double typology going on here. I think that's really important to see that the Elijah, John, Elisha, Jesus that connection is there. But then you have the the other transition, as you said, from Jesus to the disciples, and you have the, a similar kind of movement. Uh, Jesus ascends, and the Spirit descends and clothes 
the disciples with, um, with power from on high and invest them with the path that Jesus had been taking on. So uh, in some sense, the church is carrying on the Elisha work where Jesus is uh, in the position of Elijah. And I know that this is not, doesn't have exactly to do with the type question about typology, but I noticed when I worked on second uh, Kings, how the, you have uh, a, uh, a kind of sacrificial movement in the, uh, in the, in the, in the story in second Kings one, sorry, second Kings two, where you have the, the two Elijah and Elisha are together. That's described uh, repeatedly in the opening. Uh, when they get to the, other side of the Jordan, they're separated by this chariot of fire, and then one of them ascends in fire into heaven and then leaves his cloak behind. And I think that's that's an ascension motif, but it's an ascension motif that's joined in with a sacrificial kind of movement, where you have the two who are joined, Elijah and Elisha, are sub- separated. Uh, one part of the of the duo is ascends uh, in fire into heaven, and the other part of the duo is left. Uh, to receive the the cloak of Elijah and the power of Elijah that's conferred on Elisha. So I think that, again, the the typological connection would be that uh, that helps us to see in what sense Jesus' Jesus ministry is sacrificial. Um, uh, Made this point in a lot of different connections, but sacrifice is not just about the death of the victim or the death of Jesus, but it's about the whole movement from through death into the presence of God, that that whole movement is a sacrificial movement, and we see that being typified or uh, figured here in the in the in the ascension of Elijah. Another thing to notice is when we talk about Elisha acting in the spirit and the power of Elijah, um, we see a very close connection between the ministry and the mission of Elijah and that of Elijah. So much so that Elijah is commissioned in chapter so, chapter 19 of First Kings to anoint um, Hazael, king of Assyria, Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and then Elisha in his place. Now, he only does one of those things. He only anoints Elisha as his successor. Elisha does the rest. And in the same way, um, in the book of Acts, I think we see a similar sort of connection between the ministry of Christ and the ministry of his church. All that Christ began both to do and teach, and now he's continuing to act through his body, through his church, which is anointed with his spirit and is acting in his name. Um, It's not merely a fact that this is another character that has some affinity with him. This is a continuation of his personal ministry. Great. Thank you. Uh, The final question that we are going to try to answer today is this. This is a different sort of question. Does the Bible promote the idea of a meta-narrative? I'm familiar with fall redemption, etc. Is this more of our modernity putting our filters on the text uh, when we think about truth, which Israelite Emmet probably meant something different than our idea of bits and bytes of information? Uh, if the Israelites didn't use the idea of a meta narrative, then can it be helpful for us? And what are some of the dangers to be watchful of? And uh, the questioner says this got me uh, thinking when musing on Alistair's posts about particularity. I'll I'll let you, Alistair, address that. Maybe summarize what you uh, what you said in those posts that inspired the question. But let me just note this for those of you who are not familiar with the term that the term came into current. Uh, widespread current usage. I'm sure it had uh, previous uses, but widespread current uses because of the work of Jean uh, Jean Francois Leotard 
a, a French philosopher whose uh, book, The Postmodern Condition, is kind of an, a central text in the development of postmodernity in the last 60 or 70 years. I don't remember when The Postmodern Condition was first published. But the, uh, the summary statement that Leotard has uh, been quoted by everyone is that um, Leotard says, postmodernity or the postmodern condition is incredulity toward meta narratives. And what he has in mind are big organizing schemes that are often given in narrative form that explain everything in the world. And also, they're not just, it's not just large explanatory schemes, but they are also explanatory schemes that tend to justify or legitimate uh, a certain class or a certain, a certain movement. So if you're a, if you're a Marxist, you're working with a meta narrative. You, everything fits into this overall pattern of history that's uh, driven by economic factors and it has this dialectical structure to it. Uh, and that's not only a way of explaining all the specific events of history, but it's also a narrative that justifies a certain form of political action and certain form of political order because the, the communist system is what history is aiming for, what history is moving toward. So it's, it's, not just an, it's not just a big story. It's a big story that has a legitim- legitimating uh, purpose. And, I mean, you can, you can uh, and Leotard's point is that uh, modernity was driven by these various meta narratives. Uh, Marx, Marxism would be one. Uh, the notion of progress would be another. Uh, a, a specific, uh, specific application of that idea of progress would be a kind of scientific uh, narrative of uh, human illumination or human enlightenment. So all those are the the meta narratives that have formed the modern world. And according to Leotard, postmoderns are people who have become uh, suspicious of those meta narratives and no longer believe that you can organize all individual particular facts into one large scheme, and also become skeptical about the political uses of meta narratives uh, that justify certain kinds of. Uh, as I said, certain kinds of action, certain kinds of political order. So, th- so the the term has been used in all kinds of contexts since Leotard's work, and uh, it's uh, wherever wherever postmodernity is discussed, uh, Leotard's statement about uh, incredulity toward meta narratives is definitely part of it. I think the meta in meta narrative is important to notice. This isn't the same thing as a macro narrative. A meta-narrative is, in many ways, a narrative about narratives. It's standing back from all our particular stories that we tell about the world and telling a story about those stories, that all of those stories are to be understood in terms of the system of Marxism or in terms of a Freudian um, framework or in terms of a liberal narrative of progress and enlightenment. Um, Whatever it is, that is what functions in as a meta-narrative, whereas the Christian narrative, I don't think, functions in quite the same way as a meta-narrative. And the questioner's um, mention of particularity, I think, gets to something of this. Um, When we're talking about a meta-narrative, it's often presenting a form of universal narrative that can stand back from all the particulars and stand above them and speak concerning the grand narrative, the um, story about stories into which they must all find their place. Whereas the Christian narrative is one that takes its ground very firmly within the particularity of history. Um, it's not standing back to tell a, a narrative about um, the sort of narratives that we should tell in history. 
rather it's something that is rooted within the telling of a historical narrative itself. And so we inhabit that narrative and that narrative transforms us and shapes us and orients us. But it is from a very particular localized vantage point, not from a supposed universal vantage point. Now, that localized vantage point doesn't mean that it doesn't have implications and relevance for everyone everywhere, but it means that we're telling it from a grounded vantage point, not from a vantage point that's behind all vantage points, declaring how those vantage points have to operate, what stories they need to fit in terms they need to fit into. And so when we're talking about creation, fall, etc., we're not just talking about a universal pattern that all stories must fit into. It's talking about a very particular actual story, the actual shape of history seen from a proper perspective. Now, that requires a particular vantage point, that it's in Christ that these things find their coherence. Apart from that, we find that our narrative of history will necessarily be fragmentary and um, disjointed in tensions and incoherent. But in Christ, we have a very particular vantage point that enables things to be reconciled. And so I would think that a Christian understanding of the universal pushes against the notion of meta-narrative to the extent that it's not trying to get behind all the narratives, but it's recognizing this one actual situated rooted narrative that enables all the differences, all the tensions between these things to be reconciled in something that traverses all those particulars. And that, I think, is the difference between what we talk about when we talk about Christ as the great um, story that brings together history and provides unity for it, um, as opposed to these meta-narratives that stand, as it were, one stage removed from history and the actual stories of it. Yeah, I think you, you also have a maybe a richer understanding of what the particulars are uh, when you're thinking, especially if you're thinking about, as the questioner is coming at this with a question about hermeneutics, uh, if you're thinking about history as uh, typologically ordered, uh, this is one of the things that we emphasize at Theopolis, that typology is not just a way of reading a text, the text of the Bible, but uh, typology is uh, a the pattern of history that is reflected in the way the Bible tells the story of Israel's history and the history of Jesus and the apostles. But it's not, that's not a, that's not something that's imposed on the, the events, but it's God is, God is writing history with these echoes and foreshadowings and fulfillments that are built into them, which means if you, if you think of history itself as typological, then the particulars, the particular events are, them, they are particular, but they are pointing to, they're part of, not just part of, but they're pointing to this larger story. There's the, the as it were, the universal story is embedded in the particular. So we were looking earlier in the podcast at the at the uh, story of Elijah and Elisha, that's a particular event in the history of uh, Israel, the particular event in the history of these two men. But within that, uh, in the way that God has designed the tapestry of human history, within that you see this opening up to this a larger perspective that's foreshadowing the ministry of Jesus following John and the ministry of the church following Jesus' ministry. And so the, that overarching story 
is already embedded in the particulars. And I, that, that may be a way of getting a, another way of getting a, a difference that uh, it's just a, it's a, a richer and fuller understanding of what the particulars entail. I think another thing to add to that is the way that the Christian narrative is a lot more open to something beyond it. Um, it's not a self-contained narrative in terms of which everything can be ordered and in terms of which we can establish um, our political structures, etc., in a way that rules out any challenge from without. There's an inherent openness to the Christian narrative because it's a story about God and God and his action within history. It's a story that looks towards God's action in the future as well, that awaits um, the return of Christ. And in that respect, I think it differs from the sort of utopian narratives that you might find, for instance, in Marxism, which predefines a history. And in terms of that closed, prescribed future, um, it determines the present. Now, I don't think the Christian narrative works with that same degree of um, narrative closure. Now, there's a, a degree to which we do know what's going to happen at the end. But yet, that is an uh, eruption of God's work into history. Um, it's not something that is held within a created framework of narrative itself that can be controlled and contained. Um, we can't contain God's action in the same way as you can contain some imminent force within history or some principle or logic of reality. Um, the Christian narrative in that sense is necessarily one that has an openness that makes it very difficult to found human political power and structure upon it because it's always open to a critique and challenge from without yeah and i, th I think that gets to the uh, what seems to be the force of the question which is about again as i take it a, at least a significantly a hermeneutical question and the, the worry that uh, thinking in terms of a meta-narrative you know creation, fall, redemption, that kind of large scale, and using that as a, using that, that structure that's been abstracted from the biblical text as a, as a framework for understanding, that can, that can be helpful in a, in a certain pedagogical way, I guess. But I think the danger is that you lose the openness that you're talking about, Alistair. Uh, I think you also are in danger of smoothing out what are inevitably rough edges in scripture. We don't understand why things happen as they do, even in the Bible. I mean, much less in the uh, the events of our lives or the events of contemporary history, we can't figure out what's happening. Uh, there's a there's a uh, unevenness and raggedness to uh, not only to no our knowledge of the events, but to the events themselves. And the the Bible reflects that kind of raggedness. And so, I think that one of the risks of using a a scheme to organize our our biblical understanding is the is the loss of that uh, the element of surprise, I guess, or the openness. Uh, to uh, to critique or to uh, new development, uh, or the just the raggedness of particular events that uh, that don't fit into the smooth the smooth overview, the overarching narrative. They don't fit easily into that. I think maybe give an example real quick. Uh, you know, think of people who who look at have a certain law gospel dynamic or a certain way of understanding the gospel, and then they go and read stories, for example, in the in the uh, uh, the book of Judges. And everything has to filter through that scheme, and it's all about uh, God's ability to over to justify the ungodly, uh, rather than actually trying to figure out the the more challenging details of what's going on in the Book of Judges. Everything gets filtered into 
and filtered through this scheme of sin and grace. Not that sin and grace aren't there, not saying that, but that the, the overarching scheme can, can, uh, can actually obscure what the Bible's teaching us rather than eliminate it. And there, an example or an illustration you could think of is the difference between following a map and following an itinerary. A map allows you to stand back from the terrain and look at it, as it were, from a God's eye perspective, see all possible itineraries on a single sheet of paper or on a screen, and be able to trace all these things out, whereas in a way that doesn't require inhabiting them and dealing with the open-endedness of time and movement through space where we're not seeing everything all at once. Whereas when you're following an itinerary, it requires being attentive to the ground in front of you, reading landmarks and recognising patterns and other things like that. And we are very much in the work of um, following an itinerary rather than reading a map. And I think often theology has lurched into the mode of making this great map of scripture that makes it very difficult for us to actually recognise the lay of the land that's before us. We become unskilled in actually navigating um, on the ground itself because we're so used to looking at everything from this grand perspective that's standing back from any particular vantage point which is why many people, I think, when they read the biblical narrative, their concern is to translate that into some theological, um, cartographical projection, um, which is very detached from the actual appearance of the landscape itself. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.